want you to think about the one time in your life that you felt the most helpless. I'm talking about any situation you may have encountered where no matter what you say or what you do, you cannot change or alter the outcome. Are you there yet? Good. Now with that thought in mind, I want you to try and imagine, if you can, what Claire Hunter must have felt when she received the phone call when she learned that something had happened to her son. Initially, not knowing what something was, trying to call her husband, who was not answering his phone because he was dealing with the police who had descended upon his home and who was then transported to the station to answer questions. What must have been going through Claire Hunter's mind as she sat in a hotel room in Hawaii an eight-hour flight away from her home as her mind was flooded with any number of things that could have befallen her baby boy. Claire Hunter was in the proverbial dark. And then she finds out. Now, I've tried to think about what I would be doing or thinking if I had just learned that something beyond horrific had happened to one of my children. And I was in absolutely no position to do anything about it. I couldn't race home to be with my family. I couldn't be on the ground trying to find answers. I couldn't console or be consoled, despite the fact that I would be inconsolable. So Claire Hunter very well may have literally been in the worst situation imaginable. I honestly can't think of anything worse. And then the passage of time must have seemed never-ending. Trying to explain to the airline carrier why you have to move up your flight, all the while being only half present, if that, mentally. The nightmare of going through security at the airport. Then, just sitting on that plane, alone with her thoughts for eight hours, unable to communicate with the world to find out what the hell happened to her son. Then, to top it all off, to land in Omaha, only to have the nightmare heighten is she must begin to deal with the awful reality, the loss of her baby boy. Not only the loss of her child, but to lose him in that manner. Then, she must locate her devastated family, and collectively, they will try to understand what has happened. It must have been surreal, as if she was watching it all happen from outside of herself. And yet, it's only the beginning. There are the police interviews, arranging the funeral, attending her youngest child's funeral, which is every parent's worst nightmare. Then, the grieving, the suffering, the sleepless nights, trying to continue to work, and the waiting. Waiting for the answer to the questions, who and why. Only to begin to realize that she very well may never get that answer. And even if the answers come, can that enormous hole that has been left behind when Thomas was taken from her ever be filled? Of course not. That's now a permanent fixture in her life, never to be repaired because the damage is irreparable. Yet, in spite of all that I have just said, it would be Claire Hunter that would be the rock of Gibraltar for her entire family. During the most trying time that any family 
could ever endure. It was her, always her, that everyone knew without question that they could lean on when their legs were giving out beneath them. All the while, she had nothing and no one behind her holding her up. She is the definition of a woman. She is the definition of a mother. Unwavering as a pillar of strength when everything and everyone else around her crumbles to the ground. Now, I'm trying to diligently put into words what must that feel like to be Claire Hunter. But, of course, I cannot. Maybe, just maybe, there was a moment in there where your mind brought you to the unthinkable. Because, as always, we won't let you get desensitized on this podcast. These aren't just names. These are human beings who experience loss and pain, as we all do when we lose someone we love. But this, this was a different type of loss because there was an intent to harm, an intent to kill, an intent to purposefully extinguish a life. It was beyond cruel and may just be the most glaring example of exactly how brutal life can be. to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is Episode 7. Lean on me. We left off with three developments that had taken place. The cops had released the composite sketch of the stranger to the public via the media, and all tips are to be run through the Crime Stoppers hotline. One of the tips that came in over the first weekend that the composite was released was from an administrator from Creighton University, a woman named Angela. She reached out to Crime Stoppers because she believed that due to Bill Hunter being the father of Thomas, that maybe, just maybe, it was a former disgruntled student that was responsible for these gruesome crimes. And, at the very least, they should be given a hard glance. Detective Yetz took all of the information, and there was one former student that piqued her interest. And it wasn't Anthony Garcia. Rather, it was a man named Michael Belenke. This man would lead the Omaha Police Department down the rabbit hole, as the more they learned about him, the more interested they became about his whereabouts on March 13th. But that's for later. And last, but certainly not least, Omaha PD received a visit from the man that based on multiple conversations with the people that knew Shirley best, as well as a slew of calls to the hotline, that they wanted to talk to most of all, that man being Kelly's boyfriend. Let's dig in. The boyfriend shifted uncomfortably in his seat as Officer Majewitz continued his questioning of the man that nearly everyone agrees had the biggest beef with Shirley Sherman. Was it so extreme that it drove him to kill her and an innocent 11-year-old boy? Officer Mark Majewitz was ready to get to the nitty-gritty with this guy, but he doesn't go in like a bull in a china shop. Instead, 
he eases into it. So tell me about your relationship with Kelly's family. Is it good, bad, just okay? Well, uh, I know Kelly's brother, Jeff. He's a good guy, and, and we got along pretty good until the dust-ups with Kelly started to happen. And after that, I wouldn't exactly call us friends. Uh, okay, so you and Jeff aren't taking any Husker games anytime soon. What about Shirley? How did you all get along? Shit, not good, man. She was super pissed off at me about the shit that got broken out at the house when Kelly and I would get into it. And then I broke Kelly's jaw. You know, she went nuts. Everything, you know, doing everything possible to keep me away uh, from Kelly and her kid. I'm a bit confused here. Why would Shirley be upset with you for breaking things at Kelly's house? I mean, aside from her jaw, of course. Uh, because she's the owner of the house, not Kelly. Man, I did a lot of work in that house for Shirley and her other rental property, too. And when I broke something, I'd fix it. But, you know, I guess it just wasn't good enough for her because, you know, she always ended up hiring some other guy to come and fix what I had already repaired. You know, and I always kind of thought that was bullshit, man. Fair enough. But let me ask you, aside from Kelly and your ex's house, is there anywhere else that you stay? Yeah, I, I've stayed with my brother a few times over the years, but really, man, I'm, I'm pretty much with Kelly every day. Okay, let me ask you about your job. How much do you make? Uh, about 50 bucks an hour, but my ex has uh, my pay garnished in court because I owe back child support, so I'm basically broke all the time, man. That's rough, but, you know, let me ask you this. It appears that you have some background with drug possession, in particular meth. Is that still an issue for you? Yeah, yeah man. Uh, the meth has always, you know, kind of had me fucked up all kinds of ways. I've been battling that demon for years. To You know, to be honest, the meth is the problem with me and Kelly. You know, we were both using, and shit would just get out of control sometimes. When was the last time you used? It's been a minute. Um, I'm going out about three weeks clean, and I'm feeling way better since I kicked it. What about booze and other drugs? I mean, I drink, you know, but it's not an issue. Not like the meth. Not even close. The thing about meth is that you know how much it's fucking up your life, but once it's got its hooks in you, you don't give a shit about anything other than getting your next fix. I don't really mess with other hard drugs. I'll smoke some weed from time to time if somebody has it and they offer it to me, but you know, I'm not going out to buy it or nothing. Uh, any spare money I could scrounge up was used on meth. I know it's messed up, man, but I'm telling you, that shit's evil. All right, I, I assume that you know why you're here, right? You are aware that Shirley was murdered back on the 13th of March, right? Yeah. Okay, so on March 13th, where were you during the day? Well, last Thursday, I worked my normal shift. I, I got to the shop at about 7.30 in the morning and then worked until about 4. Okay, so you worked a full day. Let me ask you this. How do they keep track of your hours at work? Do you clock in or do they have timesheets? Nah, there's no time clock at the shop. The foreman at my job, Leon, he, he keeps a journal log of all of our hours. Okay, so Leon would be the guy that I would ask to confirm that you were at work all day Thursday. You happen to have his number? 
Jeff picks up his phone off the table and scrolls through and reads off Leon's number. Leon's also the guy who hired me. You know, he's, he's a good guy. So would you consider Leon a friend? Are you guys pretty tight? Nah, it ain't like that. He's just a good guy. You know, he hired me and all, and he's a good boss. Like, he didn't shit-can me when that stuff with, with Kelly happened last year, and I was stuck in jail for like a month. Well, he does sound like a good man. Let me ask you this. Is there anybody else that you work with that would be able to vouch as to your whereabouts last Thursday? Mm, well, right now there are a couple of mechanics and a carpenter and Leon working with me. Um, the two mechanics are Carl and Eric. I, I don't know their last names. Uh, the carpenter's a guy named Brian. Do you have their phone numbers? You guys ever hang out after work? Nah, I, I don't have their numbers, and nah, we, we never hung out like that. Fair enough. Let me ask you this. Where did you go after work on the 13th? Uh, I went to my ex's house. I uh, hung out there till about 5.30 p.m. While Majewitz is questioning the boyfriend back at the station, an assignment that Yetz very much wanted to handle, yet she is sitting in her squad reviewing the notes that she took while she was interviewing Angela and the doctor. She looks at the names that she had jotted down and the limited information that was given. In her eyes, focus on the name that she had placed a star by earlier, Michael Belenke. She looks over at Watson and asks him what he thinks about this disgruntled former student angle. It's as good as any theory at this point, he tells her. But she is very curious about what Majewitz is getting out of the boyfriend back at the station. Her gut is telling her that he is the guy. Yeah, we definitely need to be looking into these guys. This one guy, though, this Blanky, he sounds like a real shitbird. He's got multiple complaints from female residents that he's sexually harassing them. That he said, she said scenario can lead to somebody being pretty pissed off. And if he was fired by Hunter and he doesn't believe that he deserved it, it's definitely a possible motive. Let's keep this on the radar. We need to get some more information on this Blanky character. When we interview Bill Hunter next, we'll ask him about this guy. We also need to start getting some records from the school. We need everything that they have on them. Watson nods in agreement. They pull out of the lot and head back to the station. Back at the station, the interview of the boyfriend continues. Majewitz asks him this. How did you find out about Shirley being killed? Well, I got a phone call from Liz. She lives in the coach house behind Kelly's house. She's a friend of Kelly's. Anyway, she told me that she'd been watching the news and that she recognized the house that they were showing on the TV where they were saying that two people had been killed. She said she knew that that was the house that Shirley cleaned because she had helped her clean that house on a few different occasions. Okay, what else did she say? Nothing really. I just hung up with her and I called Kelly right away and she confirmed that her mom was one of the people that was killed. Majewitz, making sure to cover all angles, asks him if he knows of any former renters of Shirley's that may have had problems with her. The boyfriend tells him that he doesn't really know any of them, but he does know that there were a couple of guys that Shirley had evicted, and he thinks that their names were Tom and Jim, and that one of them was actually having his wages garnished because of the back rent that he owed Shirley. Majewitz then asks him, are you aware of any violent relationships that Shirley may have had? Nah, 
As far as I know, Shirley hasn't had a relationship with anybody for a good while. As a matter of fact, the last guy that Shirley had a relationship with was stabbed and murdered a few years ago. But I think he was actually stabbed by a jealous husband of another girl that he was sleeping with. But don't quote me on that. Are you aware of any potential enemies that Shirley may have had, aside from yourself? No, not really. So do you guys have a suspect? Well, it's an ongoing investigation, but I can tell you at this point that we really haven't been able to make a connection with anybody. But I must tell you that since we released the composite sketch to the media and they ran with it, we've received several tips with regards to you being someone we should look at. Me? That's crazy. Why would I kill Shirley? Yeah, sure, we didn't get along exactly, but that's no reason to kill somebody. Plus, like I told you, I was at work all day. Check with my boss. Majewitz tells him he understands where he's coming from and that he will follow up with his boss to verify his alibi. And should that check out, he should be in the clear and they will eliminate him as a suspect. But at this point, you are a potential suspect. And the one thing that could really help us rule you out is if you would be willing to provide us with a DNA sample. The boyfriend thinks on it for a moment. While the thought of it makes him nervous, it doesn't make him as nervous as being a suspect. So he agrees. The cop slides him a consent form for him to sign, which he does. The cop then pulls out two cotton tip swabs from a clean, unopened package and asks him to open his mouth. The cop swabs inside of both of his cheeks and places the swabs back in the packaging and seals them closed. At this point, the cop thanks him and terminates the interview. Claire Hunter has made her way back home and is connected with her husband and her boys. At this point, she understands that Omaha PD needs to speak with her and try to get some background about both her and Thomas and Shirley Sherman. And she will do that in short order. But at this particular point in time, there is simply nothing or no one that requires her presence and attention more than her family. Her first order of business is probably the most awful task that any parent could ever be required to undertake, which is to arrange for her little boy's funeral. It would take all of her strength to power through the immediate future, and she knew that she was the only one of the hunters that was capable of doing what needed to be done. Thomas Hunter was laid to rest on March 18th of 2008, and Shirley Sherman was laid to rest on March 19th of 2008. And as the devastated loved ones of both victims gathered to pay their final respects to both Thomas and Shirley, there was one particular organization that was watching both of these gatherings very, very closely, namely the Omaha Police Department. You see, it's not all that uncommon for law enforcement to have a large presence at funerals that are held for victims of cases that remain unsolved at the time of the burial. While it's not a detail that any cop relishes, the fact of the matter is that it's a necessary evil. It's well known that offenders will often revisit the scene of a crime for a myriad of reasons, and the same holds true with funerals. So both of the events will be videotaped from start to finish. All attendees will be captured on film. The cops will take down all the license plates of every vehicle that is in the procession. Cops will be stationed all over the cemetery, 
keeping watchful eyes out for anybody that may seem to be out of place or lurking in the shadows. At this point in the investigation, the fact of the matter is that five days have passed, and the strongest lead that they have is Shirley's daughter's boyfriend, and it appears on its face that he may have a legitimate alibi. So these types of operations, which may seem a bit desperate, may be all they have to go on. And rest assured that the videos will be poured over by multiple sets of eyes. The plates, all of the vehicle plates will be run. In short, no stone will be left unturned. There is one other resource that has been exceptionally active since the time that the sketch was made public, and that is the Crime Stoppers tip line. Now, we have discussed that much of what comes through the tip line will end up being useless and will eat up huge amounts of valuable time and manpower. But this too, much like the funeral operation, is a necessary evil, as Omaha PD is in no position at the present time to be picky with its leads. Because you never know, they may just end up finding that needle in the haystack. Now the tips come through in one of two ways, either telephonically or through the internet via the website. And aside from several calls regarding the boyfriend being a potential suspect, and that is related to an underlying circumstance as opposed to his appearance matching the composite sketch, there has been only one other potential suspect that multiple tips have come in on. Unlike the boyfriend, this particular man shares a striking resemblance to the composite sketch of the stranger. So Adrian Lepore, a Omaha resident, has ascended rather quickly up the potential suspect list, and he is someone that they need to talk to. Where can they find him? On March 20th, a call comes into the tip line from a woman named Liz. She calls and states that she lives in a home that is owned by the late Shirley Sherman. Now, if you're wondering, now if you're wondering if this is the same Liz that Kelly's boyfriend talked about during his interview, well, in fact, yes it is. And it's Officer Majewitz that gets the call to go and talk to her. Which makes sense, as he had talked to Kelly's boyfriend just three days prior. So Majewitz arrives at Liz's home just before 2 p.m. on the 20th. He rings the bell and Liz answers, and she invites him in. He starts the interview like all interviews are started, by getting her biographical data. He learns that she's lived at the residence for three and a half to four years. She informs him that she was a friend of both Shirley and Kelly, and that she helped Shirley clean the hunter's home on several occasions, but that recently she wasn't able to work with her as she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Majewis expresses that he's sorry to hear that, and then he asks her what she believes she can add to the investigation. Liz tells Majewitz that she has a strong sense that Kelly may have knowledge or may have been involved with her mother's death. Boy, with friends like this, who needs friends? Majewitz asks her why she thinks that. Well, she says because Kelly owes her mom in excess of $40,000. That's the main reason. But she's also of the opinion that both Jeff Sherman and Kelly treated their mother badly. She continues, she knows for a fact that Kelly has struck her mother before because she's seen it with her own two eyes, this girl slapping and pushing her mother. 
Majewitz inquires if Liz has any idea what precipitated the altercations between mother and daughter. Well, primarily the money she owed Shirley and her addiction to meth. On top of that, I also know that Shirley recently tried to involve Child Protective Services with regards to Kelly's little four-year-old daughter. Shirley was trying to get custody of her granddaughter because Kelly has a drug problem and was incapable, both physically and financially, to take care of her daughter. Liz goes on. Also, almost all of Shirley's credit cards are maxed out because she's always having to bail Kelly out of trouble. Now, none of what she is saying is triggering Majewitz's spidey senses that Kelly killed her mother. Nonetheless, he continues to take copious notes of everything that the seemingly nosy neighbor is saying. Liz continues, I can tell you one thing that may have gotten Shirley into hot water. She had a habit of writing down the make and models and plates of every car that visited Kelly's home. She did this because she believed that these people were delivering drugs or were maybe even buying drugs from Kelly. Liz was also privy to the fact that when Kelly wasn't home, that Shirley would sneak in and remove drug paraphernalia and take pictures of the terrible living conditions of Kelly's home. Liz then begins to tell Majewitz about Kelly's boyfriend, who's violent and abusive. Now, Liz has zero idea that Majewitz knows all about the boyfriend and his domestic violence issues with Kelly, but he's not about to let Liz know that. Finally, she says something that he finds interesting. She says, I know Shirley has been actively seeking an order of protection against the boyfriend to keep him off all of her properties. Now, as I read through this report and think back to the interview with the boyfriend, I can't help but wonder what this woman's angle was when she allegedly called the boyfriend to let him know that she believed that Shirley had been killed. That actually happened. It seems to me that based on this conversation, that this little busy bee was doing some snooping of her own. I have to believe that as soon as she heard about the murders at the Hunters, that she immediately assumed that Shirley was one of the victims. Obviously, Kelly could have told him where Shirley was cleaning that day. She could have even given him the exact address. I'm interested to know when that call took place because I'm thinking she's trying to catch the boyfriend with his figurative pants down when she calls. Maybe he'll sound winded or panicked. Anything to give her a clue as to whether or not he's the culprit. Or maybe I'm giving Liz way too much credit. Either way, based on what she's telling Majewitz about him, I can't come up with another explanation as to why she would have called the boyfriend at all. But Liz isn't done dishing dirt, not by a long shot. She then tells Majewitz that she believes that Kelly had gone into Shirley's home after she was killed to retrieve a notebook, which may have contained potential notes about drug activity that implicate Kelly. Majewitz asks Liz if she has any proof of what she is alleging, either that the notebooks exist or that Kelly removed them. No, she tells him, just my gut. And my gut ain't wrong very often. Majewitz is starting to grow weary of the unsubstantiated allegations made by Liz and decides to challenge a few of her theories. So Liz, are you personally aware of any large insurance policies that Shirley may have carried? Liz admits that she doesn't know whether or not Shirley had any life insurance policies, 
but she does know that Shirley recently changed her will to leave her estate to her grandchildren, effectively cutting both of her children out altogether. Majewitz then asks her, are you aware of any large sums of money that Shirley may have to distribute to her heirs? Well, not exactly, Liz replies. Well, I just did pay Shirley $500 for my rent, either the day before or the day that she died. This would explain the large portion of the $800 plus that was located in Shirley's purse. But that seems to be a far cry for a motive to kill. So Majewitz then asks Liz, So what about the relationship between Shirley and the boyfriend? Are you aware of any occasions where he may have been violent with her? Liz answers, Well, not that I know of, but I do know that Shirley had begun carrying a locking blade knife with her all the time. Quote, for the boyfriend if he comes around. End quote. Did you ever hear the boyfriend threaten Shirley? No, I've only seen Kelly act violently with her mom, but I know that that boyfriend of hers was constantly sneaking in and out of Kelly's house so Shirley wouldn't catch wind of it. And he would park his car behind my house so Shirley couldn't see that it was there. And he was always sneaking in under cover of darkness. And he did that because Shirley did not want his ass around her house, her daughter, or her grandkid. I know that boyfriend is a violent man because he's always either destroying something in the house or beating on Kelly. He's just bad news. Majewitz shifts the conversation to her experiences with Shirley cleaning the Hunter's homes. She's cleaned the Hunter's homes many times with Shirley, but can't recall exactly how many times. She also tells him that it was customary for Shirley to clean with the back door open and for the Hunters to pay her in cash, which they would leave on the kitchen table. Majewitz begins to wonder if this woman has some kind of axe to grind with Kelly because nothing she has told him has amounted to anything of substance and she has provided nothing that she has actual proof of. So he asks her, what is your relationship like with Kelly? She answers, well, back in 2004, I was arrested on a methamphetamine charge. I was in a car with Kelly and her then boyfriend, a different guy than her current one, when she saw a cop pulling her over for a traffic violation. Kelly immediately starts freaking out. She tells me that she has meth on her and that if she gets caught with it, that she'll lose her kid. So she begs me to hold it for her. I felt bad for her and I figured they probably wouldn't search me because I was a passenger. So I took it from her and I stuffed it into my bra. So the cops come up to the car and they made us all get out. And a female officer searched me and found the meth in my bra and arrested me. I ended up getting three years probation. And she promised me right then and there that she would take care of me for taking the hit for her. That arrest ruined my life. I lost my job and I was recently rearrested and spent 11 days in jail because I didn't finish the terms of my probation in time. Liz told me that she'd put money on my books when I was in jail, which of course she didn't. And then she never helped me out in any way after I took the charge for her. Majewitz looked her over. Well, there's my answer, he thought to himself. Okay, well, did you ever tell Shirley about helping Kelly with that situation? She answers, not for the longest time I didn't. We kept it a secret until I got thrown in jail. And then when I got out, Shirley started asking me where I had been. And I just didn't feel like lying about it anymore to her because she wouldn't have believed that I would have left town for so long without telling her. So I just told her the truth. And this wasn't too long before Shirley was killed. 
Do you know if Shirley confronted Kelly about it? I don't know, she says. Majowitz had nailed it. Liz was definitely bitter. And if her story was true, she had every right to be. He continues, let me ask you this. Do you still feel that Kelly could have killed her mother, honestly? Liz says, my heart says no, but it's certainly a possibility. Majowitz thanks her and terminates the interview. Majowitz is starting to believe that the boyfriend theory is a no-go. He knows that Yetz likes him for it, and there is definitely some smoke there. But the pieces just aren't falling into place. Yetz, in the meantime, has started the process of securing the documents from Creighton to start looking into the Russian, Michael Belenke. And Sergeant Mike Stewart is gathering the information to start trying to hunt down Adrian Lepore, the man that several people have ID'd, is looking extremely similar to the stranger. Are the cops onto something with these two potential new suspects? Only time will tell. And that time will start on the next episode. <laughs>